the President of the United States, self-appointed leader of the free world, POTUS is not an easy job to win. But what does it actually take to get yourself to the White House? In this episode, we are going to look past the media circus and the spectacle of the campaigns to really understand the election process, how it works, who can run, and why certain people seem to find it much easier to win. As we answer the question, how are presidents elected? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Returning from the faculty this week is Dr. Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Welcome back, Emma. Hi, good to see you again, Liam. Yeah, pleasure to have you back. And uh, we're also joined today by the former BBC North America editor and author of not one, but three books about the Trump years, including the bestseller, If Only They Didn't Speak English, which we'll pop a link to in the show notes. He's also been at the forefront of BBC coverage of the last five presidential elections. And he's now one third of the hugely successful podcast, The News Agents, alongside Emily Matlis and Lewis Goodall. On our wish list of the perfect people to join us for this episode, he was at the very top. So we're delighted mm-hmm. to welcome to the show John Sopel. Uh, flattery will get you everywhere, Liam. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's compensation considering we're not paying you anything for this. So welcome <laughs> I'm to the very show. happy to be part of it. <laughs> and before we dive into the episode, obviously, you know, myself and Emma, we watch presidential elections from the comfort of our own home and uh, see it all play out on our TV screens thousands of miles away. But uh, you're in the eye of the storm, or you have been, um, through the middle of the campaigns and election nights. So tell us a bit about what that's like. Well, it's exhausting because you are, because to say the bloody obvious, America is a very big country and you are crisscrossing it, landing at regional airports after everything is shut, getting to some crappy hotel at one in the morning, going to a rally first thing the next morning, and then you're on a plane again the next day to somewhere else where you're going to hear the same stump speech by the candidate again and again and again. And it can get monotonous, although in fairness, with Donald Trump, it was never boring because there was always this sense of jeopardy you didn't have a clue what he was going to say. And I don't think he did. And he would sort of have an auto cue, an auto script and teleprompter. And he would kind of start on his stump speech and then he'd get bored. And then he'd go off in all sorts of weird and wonderful directions. And invariably, I mean, in the 2016 election in particular, he ended up getting disproportionate coverage because if you had a choice between Donald Trump and, I don't know, Marco Rubio and John Kasich or whoever it happened to be or Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, you think, oh, no, we're going to take Donald Trump every single time because it's fun. And so it's grueling, it's punishing, and it's complicated. It's a three-dimensional chess game you're playing to win the presidency because the, the route to the White House is about getting these 270 votes in the Electoral College, and that takes a bit of maths, working it out, where which states you can pick up, and each state has a different number of Electoral College votes depending on the size of the population, and so you've got to figure out a route. 
Yeah, and at face value, it just looks like people are hopping about from state to state giving a speech and, and that's it. And then you just, you, you win as many votes as you can and bam, you're in the White House. But of course, it's a bit more complicated than that. So let's go back to the absolute basics. And Emma, I wonder if you could explain a bit about who is even eligible to run for president? Um, sure. I was just thinking there with um, with John's explanation about the, the so-called glamour of the presidential <laughs> election, which apparently is, is nothing like it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of qualifications for the presidency, when you look at the Constitution, which is where we go for these, the, the official part of, of this, there are relatively few qualifications. Right? Um, Article 2, Section 5 says that the candidate for the presidency has to be at least 35 years old, which seems pretty young to us today, but probably wasn't in the late 1700s. And they have to be a natural born citizen of the United States, which I think is important. Unlike running at state level or for Congress, where people who've been born in another country but become naturalized citizens to the United States, they can run and hold office, um, even governors, in fact. Uh, If you are the running for the presidency of the United States, you have to have been born in the the US itself. And you have to have been resident in the United States for 14 years as well. So if you've lived for a lengthy period of time outside of the the United States, I don't know that that's really been a problem for anybody, but it it would be an interesting challenge if it ever came up, but it it really hasn't. So that's that's it. That, That is literally the formal qualifications. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that you need to do to be successful as a candidate, which I suspect we will be talking about as we go on. But things like you need to be able to get people out to vote. You need to get people to respond to you. You need to be able to raise money unless you're extremely rich and willing to pay for it all yourself. So there there are things about the personalities um, and things that make people better candidates than others. But if we are talking about formal qualifications, people might be surprised given how powerful the office is, how relatively few there, there actually are. And of course, can I just add to that, Emma, that the one thing there isn't, and this is going to be hugely relevant potentially in 2024, is that there is no upper age limit. You have to be 35, but you can be any age. And if there is going to be a rerun of Biden versus Trump, it is going to pitch an 82-year-old against a 78-year-old. And some would say that is a very serious shortcoming. And I've just come back from Washington. I went back there by coincidence to see friends, and then Biden announces that he is running again. And there was some polling evidence that suggested overwhelmingly that Americans, I mean, they don't agree on much, but they both, Americans agree that Trump shouldn't be running again, nor should Biden. Yeah, and it reminds me of criticisms of Reagan back in in 1988 and concerns that that Reagan wasn't up to the job either. And I mean, he was, I think, 77 when he left office in January 1989. So he was younger then than both Biden and Trump will be if they're running again in 2024. So yeah, that that exactly comes up as a, an issue in this next election. It, it doesn't exactly help as well that, that Joe Biden hasn't done an awful lot to soften the criticism in the last couple of years about his age. I think that, that, that there are there are times where he's he's seemed, for want of a better word, a bit doddery 
Um, he's stuttered a bit. He's really played into the criticism of being a bit too old for the job. All I would say about that is that Joe Biden has always stuttered. He has had a stammer his whole life. And Joe Biden has always used 100 words when one would do. He is long-winded. That was always Joe Biden. Now, yeah, I agree, he is doddery. But some of this narrative around him being senile, not in control of events, I don't quite buy. I've seen enough of Joe Biden up close to believe that, yeah, he's long-winded, yeah, he's old, yeah, he stutters, but he ain't gaga. And so I think that's kind of important. But you're right, he does play into that. There is the risk it's going to become the narrative, though, isn't it, because of his age, that that ultimately that will be something that will end up being discussed. And that will be, regardless of what the White House tries to, or the campaign tries to do, that's going to be the narrative that, that runs. And I'm just thinking about someone like George W. Bush, who misspoke, famously misspoke on a regular basis, but because he was younger, that never became a discussion about whether he was old or senile. It just became a bit of a running joke. Um, for a period of time. So, you know, those things have happened before, but but Biden's age is, and possibly Trump's age, if he does become the the Republican candidate, opens up the room for that discussion. I think the big gamble that Biden is taking is that his electability, I think, depends on Donald Trump running again. If the Republicans choose someone younger, more reasonable, more rational, more intellectually disciplined, more focused. I think Joe Biden has huge problems. I think if Trump runs again, then there's a fair possibility that the same anti-Trump coalition that formed in 2020, which was broadly speaking, white college educated women, people in the suburbs, independents and liberal Republicans, they will still go to Biden, even with all those caveats, Emma, that you've just outlined. Because I think that that whilst Donald Trump, in polling terms, has a very high floor, say 30-35%, he's never going to get below 30-35% of the vote, he can't get to 45%. And he's got a very low ceiling. Because people have just made up their mind that they think that the chaos was too great, and I think exacerbated by the events of January the 6th, that people think, I don't want to go back there. So let's... Uh, just hypothetically uh, assume that someone in a few years comes along who's even older than Biden. They're in their 90s. Let's say they're they're even 100. But they've got sort of George Washington-esque popularity. There's absolutely no chance they can lose the election. Should there be an upper limit? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, I mean, I come across this a lot when I'm looking at the Supreme Court because there's a lot of discussion about whether there should be an upper age limit for Supreme Court justices who quite often have served into their late 80s and and early 90s. I think it's problematic because different people are more capable and less capable at, at different ages, right? So, you know, saying there's an absolute ceiling is problematic because somebody might be really capable at 80 and more capable than another person at 70. So maybe there's a question about the parties playing a a role, the electorate playing a role in in judging. I think it's deeply problematic if you get into a point of saying somebody has to draw the, the line because who draws the line and why? 
and where do you draw it? I think that I think that would be impossible to do. I do, I do think it is a kind of incredible flaw of American politics that we are in a position where out of a country of 350 million people, roughly, you are left with a choice between someone who's a bit of a doddery 82-year-old and someone who's an irascible 78-year-old. And is that the best that America can offer? Of course it's not. But the way the system is uh, is set up, it means that Donald Trump is virtually unstoppable in terms of winning the Republican nomination. And Joe Biden is untouchable after the Democrats did very well in the midterm elections. And who is going to run against a sitting president? Who is a serious candidate that is going to run against the sitting president? Yeah, and I think we could probably debate until the end of time whether there should be more or less eligibility criteria around who exactly can run. But the facts are that the the, the criteria is what it is, which means people like, say, Donald Trump can run and can get elected and have been president but it's not quite as easy as someone just standing up and saying i'm running for president and people then voting for them there there is a process there 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 are steps to follow so john i wonder if you if, if you could just explain what that process is a little bit okay well you touched on one thing earlier on and i think it's very important we come back to it and that is money if you are used to the british political system the Conservatives or Labour Party in the next general election will probably spend a total 50, 60, 70 million pounds on the election campaigns. Joe Biden is talking about raising, and this is just for his presidential bid, forget all the governor's races that are going on, forget the House races, forget the Senate races that are going on, forget lower ticket races. Joe Biden is talking about the need to raise $2 billion dollars. That's the scale of the money part of it, because you are running ads in a way that you can't do in Britain. You can, here we can have a, uh, you know, a party political broadcast, but you cannot buy advertising. And in the US, in key swing states, that is what you do. And so you start off with a map of America and 50 states and you need to get to 270 electoral college votes. So, you know, a small state like Alaska only has three electoral college votes. Well, you're not going to spend much money there because, frankly, three electoral college votes doesn't help you that much. But California, the most popular state in America, well, that has 54. So if you get California in your, well, you know, you're 20% of the way there to um, getting what you need to do. And so you're building up a map of the states and you're thinking, where are the states that will get me to 270? And what you find is that if you look at that map closely, that the Democrats have a lot of the very big states, like California, like New York, and the Republicans have a lot more states voting for them, but they're small. They're kind of North Dakota and South Dakota and Montana and Idaho and places like that. And so they have to build up an awful lot more states to get to 270. But ultimately, ultimately, when this race, you know, it, it's like a board game that you get this state, that they get that state. What, what do I do if they get that state? Well, I'll go for this state. There are about five or six states that are really critical in this. And you can, you know, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. Those are the states that are key in play. Florida, Ohio, maybe as well. And if you can pick off those states, then you're with the rock solid states that you have, then you're on, on, on course to win the White House. 
as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of states have a, a fairly loyal support towards one party or another, like California is generally Democrat and you know Texas is generally Republican. If you add up all of the safe states, who do you think generally has the advantage with electoral votes going into the swing states? Well, it's it's hard to say because, I mean, you know, if you have got a governor in a particular state who has passed election law, and remember kind of when people can vote, how long the polling stations are open, can you vote early by post, can you vote early by going to polling stations, that is decided by the state. It's not nationwide. So you can have you can go to one state and find one way of voting and go to another state and find a completely different way of voting. There are no federal laws on when the polling station should be open and how early voting should take place. So one of the big advantages you have is if the governor is Republican in a Republican state, they will try to massage the voting rules so that they favor a Republican. So, for example, let me give you an example. In Georgia, it is a common tradition that in the the black community, after church on Sunday morning, and religion plays a much more important role in America than it does in the UK, there will be buses taking people that have gone to the traditionally black churches to vote. Now, one of the things that Georgia is doing is cutting down the availability to do that because overwhelmingly, the black population in America votes Democrat. Now, the Georgian authorities will say, well, that's not gerrymandering. That's not uh, voter suppression. We're just trying to create a system whereby everybody votes fairly. But the net effect is to drive down turnout among the groups that were going to vote for your opponents. And that is done a lot in America. And it's kind of I think it's rather disturbing some of the measures that have been taken to try to suppress the number of people who vote, because surely in a vibrant democracy, what you want is the highest turnout possible. Yeah, and it's a massive debate. I mean, we perhaps don't see it so much here, but if you follow American politics closely enough, you see this happening across the, the states. And this, that's exactly the reason why it's that they're such important debates, because they go fundamentally to the ability of people to, to vote and express their, their democratic right that way. But I also think, to go back to your original question, we talk a lot here about the national level votes, right, the presidential elections, and we don't talk a lot about state level elections unless they're really close. And in the last few years, Republicans have been extremely successful at winning state legislatures, and they have the ability to set and change these these election laws, as, as John's talking about. So regardless of what's happening at the presidential level or con- congressional level, Republicans, I think, probably have the edge in terms of the number of state governments they control, which gives them control over the voting rules. And therefore, and and also because most recently the census, which means the redrawing of maps based on where people have have moved, ultimately that is is going to give in most states where there's an impact, the benefit to the Republican Party. So ultimately the Republican Party, if it's not there yet, and it may well be, is sort of the base level party that's likely to win success in these elections and then it's going to take something particular 
to help Democrats to to win. And if you like, that's all playing under the surface of these of the presidential elections, the bits that we see here. I mean, just to give a very easy example of exactly what Emma's just said, you take Florida, which, you know, for years and years, kind of going back to for whenever, it's always been one of those what they call a bellwether state where you don't know which way it's going to go. It's a swing state. It could go Republican. It could go Democrat. Well, you look at the most recent midterm elections and Ron DeSantis, who some people are talking about as a presidential candidate, won by a huge margin. Now, large numbers of people for various reasons, mainly tax reasons, have been moving to Florida. So Florida is now even more important than it used to be because there are more electoral college votes to be picked up in Florida than was the case previously. There are only a maximum of 538 electoral college votes, but they get redistributed on the basis of things like the census. And so that is why in certain Republican areas, you're seeing more electoral college votes applying to those states than some others. Yeah, and I'm sure Republicans are going to be rubbing their hands at the prospect of either Trump or DeSantis running in 24 because both are going to have a strong Florida base of support. But uh, it didn't always used to be this complicated, did it? Talking about electoral votes and splitting hairs with campaigns and all the, the, the tactics that now go on to make sure that you win votes here or there. or There was a much simpler time back in the day when they first conceived of the, the how to choose a president. Emma... How did we get here? <laughs> you know what? I don't know that it was that much simpler, actually. I mean, it was simpler because <laughs> there were fewer states. Um, so there were fewer votes to be won. Um, but it was more complicated because people couldn't travel uh, or they could travel, but at the speed of a horse um, <laughs> rather than, than anything else. So, you know, your social media equivalent of the day was going to give you the news several weeks later if you, you lived in the, 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 the state furthest to the south. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, American elections have changed for a couple of reasons. I think it's a big, complicated history and I could go on at length, but I won't because nobody wants the detailed history of it. But I think a couple of things that have, have really changed things. One is the changing electorate. You have to remember that when the United States was formed, the only people who could vote were white men with property, right? rich white men. Uh, pretty much everybody else was excluded from, from voting. And over the next 200 and 40 odd years, the electorate has has been expanded at various points. So you go from people getting the votes of their peers, their friends, their colleagues, the people they socialize with, to having to win the votes of people now they don't know and people who don't look like them and have different views. Um, and that's things like the, you know, property qualifications go in the the early part of the 19th century for a very short period after the civil war in the 1870s black men get the vote before it's ripped away from them again by the rise of segregation laws women get the vote in uh the, the early part of the 20th century black voters then if you like, fight to regain the vote, which they get with the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which protects what was their legal right to, to vote. And then 18-year-olds get the, the vote um, in the 1970s. So what you've got is uh, candidates having to appeal to larger and larger constituencies. And of course, the United States is growing over that period from the 13 states on the eastern seaboard across the country. So you've got more people over more space you're having to talk to more people you're trying to have to win them over so that 
just at a practical level makes things more complicated. But on the other side, what you get is the rise of media. You get the ability of people to, to communicate. So there have been newspapers for as long as there have been the United States. And quite frankly, if you think the American media is toxic now around election times, go read about the election of 1800, where the insults that were directed between the two candidates in the election of 1800 would make us blush. Um, newspapers were set up deliberately to support one party or another. So none of that is, is new at all. But with the rise of mass media and easier communication, it becomes easier for candidates to, to speak to, to people and to speak on their own behalf. So in the 18th, late 18th, early 19th century, it was kind of a no-no. It was looked down on to ask people for votes. Candidates didn't do that your friends and your colleagues and your, your party did that. Candidates speaking on their own, own behalf really only comes out in the late 19th century. You get the rise of radio with Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, and suddenly you've got the president in your living room talking to you, which changes the dynamics hugely, not just generally, but for, for elections as well. You get TV, you know, we talk about the Kennedy-Nixon election in 1960 and the role of televised debates, but actually televised debates don't become regular until, again, the, the 1970s. But um, as John mentioned earlier, you've got, cam you've got advertising, the buying of advertising on TV stations and earlier radio stations. So you've got that battle. Where do you put your money? How much money have you got? Which states get you the best return? And then you've got the rise of the internet. Obama managed it really successfully in 2008 with fundraising. Trump, I mean, like it or, or loathe it, in 2016 used Twitter in ways that nobody had seen before as a way to speak directly to, to his base, to, to voters, to people who liked him and, and loathed him. So all of those things both have made presidential elections just much more complicated over the history of the, the United States. I think that's a really important historical analysis and it's a great sweep in the arc of history. Uh, look, the fact of the matter is that politicians down the ages have always wanted to speak to the public unmediated by bastards in the media like me so that they're not asked a load of pesky questions. They can say what they want to say. And whether it was FDR with the fireside chats or Kennedy's apparent mastery of television or Twitter, and I think that Trump came as close as anyone has come to be able to speak without any filter with his 88 million followers on Twitter and the kind of millions who were following him on Facebook. And he used it brilliantly to say that if anyone is contradicting me, they're fake news. You know, I'm fake news. You're kind of, you know, all the rest of it. And we were accused of that at every rally and every speech he gave. And if you agreed, you were a good guy. And Donald Trump was able to get away with that much more than anyone else. There's one question I'd raise on your kind of brilliant analysis of it, Emma, is this the 2016 election, which Trump won. We talk about the Electoral College and how you've got to build up these states to get to 270. I mean, Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote by three million. And people were saying, well, that's not fair. She should surely she should be the president if the popular vote of the country is so overwhelmingly in favour of Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. But of course, that's not the rules. And there is a question over whether the rules are fair. But getting any change, a constitutional amendment, is virtually unimaginable, impossible to think. So I think that America is lumbered with this electoral college system, even though 
there are manifest problems with it where you can win the popular vote overwhelmingly and still lose the presidency. Yeah, I mean, no, nothing reminds us more that the United States was set up as a federal republic rather than a straightforward democracy, right, than, than elections. And that's, that's true whether you're talking about primary season, where you have to fight out for the, the nomination of your party by a, on a state-by-state basis rather than just the party vote, or the general election part of it, where you're having to, to win it. I mean, it's not a national election in many ways, is it? It's a state-by-state battle. And you know, one of the, the things about fairness is, of course, the fact that, that many of those people in those smaller states that perhaps do lean more heavily one way or the other often say, well, we never see candidates. Nobody comes and talks to us. Our votes are taken for granted or seen as not important. And then you wonder why people feel disconnected from the political system. So the Electoral College, we talk a lot every time the election comes around right, about the Electoral College because it's such an odd system in a, a modern democracy. But it's a legacy of the history. It's the, the legacy of the fact that the states were considered more important than the, the national government in the early years, the fear of the power of the federal government over the power of the, the states. And as you say, the politics now have become so divided that even though the Electoral College in theory doesn't inherently benefit one side or, or the other, almost nobody's going to get the political will behind it to, to try and change it because it means messing with the constitution and we don't do that because you know the, the whole country will fall apart if we touch it. I mean Liam can I go back to one of the, the your, your first question to me about what it's like covering a presidential election of course the election campaign itself is presaged by the primary campaign to win the nomination for your party to fight and that starts normally in Iowa Iowa is this tiny little farming state in the Midwest. It shouldn't be that important. But there, all the candidates have to go and press the flesh. They have to do retail politics. And I went to Iowa. The first time I went there, I, I said, well, you know, well, I've met this candidate. I've met that candidate. I've shaken hands with this one and I've spoken to that one. I haven't met that one, so I can't really decide how to vote. How can you possibly have a democracy where these people in Iowa which is an insignificant state, conservative Bible Belt state, a lot of ethanol, a lot of potatoes, and yet it plays this outsized role in American democracy because it is the first state to vote in the primary process. And they have this kind of weird caucus thing that goes on there uh, that is, I mean, that would be the subject of a whole separate podcast, which is almost inexplicable, but yet... The people of Iowa expect to meet absolutely every candidate before they're going to vote, and many of them do. And um, in a nutshell, because I think a lot of non-American listeners have probably heard the words primary and caucus, <laughs> but probably don't know what they are. So give us a sort of whistle-stop tour. What, what are they and how do they work? So the primary is the main method of selecting who the candidate is. And there will be you'll have a race go on between the different candidates and you will then vote for your candidate. So the Republic, there'll be a Republican primaries where the Republicans will vote for in a state. So, you know, after Iowa comes New Hampshire, you go to New Hampshire, the Republicans will vote for their candidate. The Democrats will vote for their candidate. There'll be a number of Democrats running. There'll be another number of Republicans running. And that gets you sort of a few scores on the door. And then you go to another state and another state. And then you get to something called Super Tuesday, where a whole pile of states vote. And you're gradually building up delegate numbers 
that get you over the limit to be the official candidate. The caucuses is the same net effect, but it's a whole lot of different tiny districts where maybe 20 people are sitting in a room and literally in Iowa, I mean, literally, this isn't metaphorical, this is literal, they are sitting on bales of hay and you've got people saying, well, why don't you come over to my side? Come over to, look, this guy is really good and I think you should vote for him. And you see people swapping from which bale of hay to sit on to another. And in one of those meetings, it was a tie and they flipped a coin for who their delegate votes would be. It is incomprehensible. And in the 2020 election campaign, it was so chaotic that we, in Iowa, we we all slapped up to Iowa. We spent days there. And we didn't get a result until days later. And it was then challenged as well because it was such total chaos. I Honestly, I think the caucus system is cute and has no place in a modern democracy. <laughs> it has um, it has echoes of sort of the, the way in which voting happened in the 19th century, right? Before the yeah. um, before things like the secret ballot came in, where voting was done in public by a show of hands and, and discussion. And there was bribery and corruption was rife which was a big part of the the debate about politics in the the 19th century so it has echoes of that kind of public voting system that was much more common in the 19th century it's a weird holdover from that where you literally just get people in a room and discuss it more or less coherently depending on the circumstances it seems whereas a primary is much more like the elections we're familiar with now right you know you go into a booth and you put a tick or a cross or whatever in a, a booth so you know they they are very very different systems but you can understand why primaries have become much more common over the the years given john's description of them because otherwise the elections would never finish by the sounds of it it's it's absolute chaos it's absolute chaos and then it all leads to the conventions which are the two parties great big set piece moments where you are anointed officially as the candidate and that's where you see all the ticker tape and the balloons and you see the big stars coming along to kind of put on a musical show it's it's there's very little political debate at these things i mean sometimes with hillary clinton when she was up against bernie sanders the convention that took place in philadelphia was at times pretty edgy because there were a lot of bernie sanders supporters who were refusing to accept that hillary was the candidate and they kind of thought it was all a fix and the Wall Street elite had paid for Hillary to win and it was all wrong and it was rotten and they couldn't they couldn't face getting behind her. So that was a bit more kind of edgy. But normally they're just a festival in showing unity and showing that you have got a candidate who is ready for the November election a few months hence. Yeah, sometimes I think it's about undoing the damage that the primary season's done, right? Particularly if you've got lots of candidates, like we've seen, particularly with the, the Republicans, uh, or we saw with the Republicans in 2016, Democrats to some extent too. You know, they spend months and months and months pulling each other apart in public forums, you know, about which candidate's going to be the best and all the rest of it. And saying so you're knocking bells out of each other for, for months and then suddenly you get to the, the general election after the convention and suddenly you're supposed to say well hey this candidate's the one we want to be president <laughs> having spent months pointing out what the problems were so almost like the, the parties want the conventions to try and be that reset button right to try and convince people that, that that's all done with now we've healed the wounds you know we didn't really mean what we said now we've all got behind this person and all those flaws no longer apply because we're in a, a different election so it's that big showpiece to kind of try and reset everything yeah. so that now this election is sort of on its own 
terms rather than on the terms of the elections that have that have been go- the primary and the caucus season that went before. There's one important point to add to that, which is, of course, when you are campaigning for the Republican vote, say in the Republican Party, and you say you're campaigning for 2024 and Trump has been the all-powerful figure, you've got to move to the right. You've got to take on positions that are kind of going to be right out there on abortion, on guns or whatever it happens to be. Um, but then a few months later, you've got the presidential election, you've got the general election. And that's when you've got to tack to the centre because if you're going to kind of be right out there on the right or on the left, if you're on the Democratic Party side and you're trying to attract the Bernie Sanders supporters or the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporters, uh, then you go to the left. But that's not going to win you the presidential election. And so you've then got after the conventions, the tacking to the centre, so you can pick up those key swing voters in the critical states, because otherwise you're just going to attract your base and get no greater support than that. And that isn't a way to win a presidential election, which was Trump's problem when he fought re-election in 2020, that he was playing his greatest hits album, which was very, very divisive. And people were going to Joe Biden, not because they loved Joe Biden, but because they didn't want any, they couldn't face four more years of Donald Trump. But isn't it becoming nearly impossible now to win the party base without alienating the other side? Because we've got this or america has this two-party system which is increasingly polarized and and trump is proof really that in order to to drum up sort of such fiercely loyal support from your party you can't do that without turning everyone else against you it's one of the weaknesses of the primary and the caucus system if you look at the people who vote it's the party activists, the people who are really committed, which tends to be a bit of a generalization here, but the statistics suggest that it, the people who vote in primaries and caucuses are the people who are the most dedicated, who tend to be on the, the further reaches on the left and the right of the, the two parties. Right? So you're kind of, you're forced into attacking to those because they're the ones who are coming out to, to vote. And if you want to win the party, you've got to win them over at that point. So. You know, whether a candidate is inclined to do that, and some are and some aren't, um, they have to do that in the primaries and then shift back to the, the middle. But yeah, that middle ground you know, used to, to exist when I started studying American politics, where you had sort of liberal, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. That, that group it was never enormous, but there was a group in the, the middle and, and slowly over the, the last 20 years or, or so, perhaps longer than that, that middle ground has eked out and eked out and eked out. So the, the differences between the parties are, are much starker. And we see that in a whole range of things to do with, with US politics, but yeah. it, it does tend to come to the fore in the election. Liam, I said to you earlier that I thought that if it was a rematch between Biden and Trump, that Biden would win. And that is one of the reasons as well, that I think that Biden has reached out to some extent and you know some of the kind of legislation the inflation reduction act and all the rest of it uh, have appealed to the the progressive wing of the democratic party but he's also kept on board the centrists he's trying to kind of be ordinary joe blue collar joe understands the concerns of ordinary americans and it's interesting that polling has always underestimated Joe Biden. And so I think that he has tried to keep uh, keep an eye on the center ground at the same time as trying to, you know, keep his progressives happy 
as well. And I, I interviewed Bernie Sanders very recently. He was in London uh, coming through and we interviewed him for our podcast. And he was kind of quite flattering about Biden and what he's done and some of the policies that he's pursued. And so I kind of think that, that Biden has been moderately successful in that, whereas Trump doesn't seem to want to make any move outside the group that already adore him. And that's Trump's problem. Thinking about your point on Iowa and the importance of Iowa, um, four years ago, Biden lost the um, primary in Iowa and actually didn't really gain traction in the, the race for the nomination until a few votes had already been cast around the country. So it feels like Biden is actually quite good at playing the underdog. Well, so, so this time round, Iowa is not going first for the Democratic Party. It's South Carolina. And South Carolina was his salvation at the last election. And there was a, there's a congressman there who played an absolutely critical role in getting African-Americans to vote for Biden in the primary. He did terribly in Iowa. He left New Hampshire early where he was getting, you know, a good old kicking. And he, go, and he flies to South Carolina because that is his last redoubt. That's the last stronghold where he hopes he can do well. And as a result of what happened in South Carolina, he then picks up momentum and starts winning big and starts winning in Nevada and Super Tuesday does very well. And that's when it kind of starts falling apart for Bernie Sanders. So this time round, although Biden is not facing any big challenges, he's not starting in Iowa. He's starting in South Carolina and the Democratic Party have made South Carolina the first state that will vote. And this this feels like a good point to ask what I'm sure is a silly question, considering we're recording this only two days after Biden has announced his re-election and we don't even know who the Republican nominee is at this point. We're still about a year away from that. But who's going to win in 2024? <laughs> <laughs> Emma, you go first. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm a historian, right? I'm, I'm trained to think about what did happen, not what will. And I get very uncomfortable when people ask me to prognosticate into the future, especially with politics, when just it can take one event, right? You can think that somebody is absolutely on the path to, to success and a single event international, national, local, whatever, can just derail it. So I honestly have absolutely no idea who would would win in 2024, because there's just too much time between now and then, and we just don't know what's what's going to happen. I mean, if it, if it looks like it's going to be a Biden-Trump rematch, for all the reasons that we've we've talked about, you would probably give Biden the edge. I don't know John, what you think about Ron DeSantis? I mean, my, my sense is that he's almost as divisive as Trump to the sort of middle ground. That if it turned out to be him, that you might want, you might give Biden the edge there. But until we know who's likely to emerge out of the Republican field, particularly, it becomes a harder call. From years of doing politics, I'm going to give you a politician's answer, which is not to answer your question, but to answer an entirely different one, which is that although as we sit here now, at the end of April 2023, everyone is saying the most likely outcome is that it is going to be Biden versus Trump all over again. And I would just say, I don't know what the event will be. I don't know what the circumstance of it is, but I suspect that something will come along that will upend that. Biden, his age, Trump still has significant legal difficulties. There's been one indictment. 
there's potentially another indictment coming in Georgia, a potential one coming in Washington, and a potentially a federal one in the January the 6th investigation. And then the him keeping hold of top secret documents at Mar-a-Lago that should have been handed over uh, to the National Archives. So there is a plenty that could still upset this. And Emma is absolutely right to say there is a very long way to go before we know any of this. So I kind of would hesitate about that. On Ron DeSantis, I've heard so many stories of people who've had interactions with him who say he's just a bit weird and very bad at retail politics. And I think that some of the early kind of popularity, he is the future after the calamitous midterm election results for the Republicans in November 22. I think some of the air is going out of that balloon. And I don't think that DeSantis is going to make it to the finish line either. So maybe it's going to be someone like Chris Christie or Nikki Haley or people that from the past who might just be able to put up a good enough performance. If it's not Trump, I'll make this prediction for the Republican Party, it will be someone Trumpian because I don't think the Republican Party would accept anything else at this stage. This episode of America, a history podcast, is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to both Emma Long and John Sopel. And if you want to learn more about presidential elections, you can check out some of the resources that we've added to the show notes. Alternatively, make sure you follow us by heading over to our website and clicking follow or subscribe Uh, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Next time, I'm joined by John Mitchell as we take a look at a modern Hollywood classic to answer the question, how historically accurate is Forrest Gump?